Let's understand the world a little better. I'm your host, Simon Wunderlich, and with me is Michael J. Seth. He's a professor of history at the James Madison University and has written several books on Korea. Uh, the latest one being Korea at War. Today, today we want to understand Korea a little better, uh, meaning North Korea and South Korea and its shared history. And with that, I first want to dive right in and ask you, what do you think makes the East um, makes East Asia in general different from the West? Well, I think the easiest way to answer that is that it had a separate history from the evolution of the West. I mean, I, I do teach world history. So if you don't mind, I would like to say that if you look at the evolution of cities and states, there really are two centers. One was the Middle East and Europe, everything from Europe to North India really was connected and has a common origins in Southwest Asia. But East Asia societies, urban centered state level societies evolved separately. And as a result of that, East Asia is really a very distinctive cultural unit, very different from Western civilizations with fewer connections than, let's say, uh, North Africa, Middle East, India. So I that's what I find it interesting. It is such a distinctive uh, and ancient area of uh, fairly advanced cultures. Fewer relations, you said, fewer connections with other countries, you mean, or? Well, uh, yes, the, if you... If you want to think of it, you could say the evolution of the of East Asia, China, Korea, Japan, maybe Vietnam. That's how I'm defining East Asia. Make it really simple. The countries that eat the chopsticks, uh, countries that have their roots in their classical culture and and in ancient China. Those societies uh, evolved quite separately from the societies in Western. Eurasia, such as in Europe, the Mediterranean, uh, Southwest Asia. And so they're very and, distinctive. They're very different. And with that came different cultures, probably with, uh, different ways of thinking. Um, could you elaborate on different that? Different ways of thinking, different solutions for problems. Many of the times there's just parallel evolution. And there are, of course, some influences and contacts even in ancient times. There was those East Asia did not evolved in total isolation from the Western part of Eurasia, but it was distinctive enough. Uh, and all you have to look is, I can give you a couple examples. Look at the writing system. All the writing systems from Thailand to, to, to Europe are all related. They all come from the exact, they all come from the same origin. But East Asian writing systems evolved from, from ancient uh, Chinese writing. So they... They do, right, and they, they evolved under somewhat different principles. So the writing set, that would be one example. Even the way they eat, one, one half of the world bakes their food, the other half boils it. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> Wheat and barley in one half, rice is the main grain in the other. So there really is a fundamental differences between the two. And within that East, East Asia region, what makes Korea different from uh, those other countries or North and South Korea from the other countries? Yeah, Korea as a whole is different because it was uh, 
uh, a separate geographic unit. It had its own culture, its own evolution, and uh, different from China. Uh, the Korean language is not related to either Chinese or Japanese. And outside the language, may, maybe in terms of um, in terms of maybe political aspects, freedom of the press, uh, for example. Well, you're talking about one. today. I mean, we're talking about the traditional culture, right? Traditional oh. culture of Korea, heavily borrowed from China, but it always remained a distinctive unit. Uh, the culture today, well, it's really that's very complicated because cultures today are are subject to much greater. Uh, international influences and their evolution. But if you want to, and the difference between North and South Korea is quite considerable. Uh, and but South Korea has been very, uh, uh, you know, very strongly influenced first by Japan and then by the U.S. Mm -hmm. And North Korea was also very strongly influenced by Japan and by China and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So both influenced by Japan. That's that's one shared. They, they have that in common, connection. right? They, they have the same colonial experience. Um, how how can one see that? So what what from uh, Japanese uh, traditions or from Japanese? Um, what came over to Korea? Well, a lot of uh, the uh, Japanese uh, ideas about modernity. What happened is the Chinese, the Japanese, uh, uh, borrowed considerably from the West in terms of ideas about uh, uh, science and technology, ideas about political organization, about social structure. Uh, Japan was profoundly influenced in the late 19th century by the West, and Korea got received a lot of those same ideas, ideas that we associate with modernization, ideas about politics, ideas about society, ideas about uh, technology and education, they, they uh, received those via Japan. So you could say that Japan, uh, they got a Japanese influence version of Western and modern culture. <laughs> Could you give examples for that? Uh, examples. Um, one thing is the language itself. Uh, most of the words, or many of the words, words that have to do with uh, country, nation, nationalism, liberty, socialism, individual freedom, the terms used in Korean are mostly Japanese loan words, and they were coined in Japan. And because they were written originally in Japanese, I mean, Chinese characters, they have a little bit of uh, a different connotation than the Western terms have, so, right? And so the Koreans borrowed some of that same different uh, connotation. And in different uh, ways of, of thinking, when, when I now think about uh, Western civilizations and um, you, you said that they influenced or the U.S. influenced uh, Japan and uh, Japan then influenced uh, Korea, I would think, hmm, what, what traditions, what ideas could come over? Maybe a more individualistic uh, lifestyle or what else? Um, yeah, oh, the uh, con modern concepts of a nation and a state. What is a nation? What is a state? Uh, uh, what I'm 
looking at is uh, here is the concept of a country of citizenship, of a participatory society, uh, a, a state that is not just a uh, dynasty, is not a territory ruled by by a ruler, and 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 who governs the subjects of that. And, and based on law, identity, based on loyalty to a ruler, right, or a ruling class. But the idea of a participatory state, which is a community of people who get together and govern themselves for their mutual benefit. That concept, of course, citizenship and a citizen state is a modern concept that really only emerged in the 18th century in Europe. But it was then borrowed by uh, Japan and, and Korea. But a lot of the Korean ways of thinking about those things came indirectly, not from the West, but by Japan. Some came directly, certainly. But, but uh, Koreans in the late 19th century, when they wanted to learn about mo modern things, when they wanted to go for higher education, generally went to Japan. It was next door, easy to get to. They were the the, the language barriers were less formidable, and uh, Japan was a society like themselves that was rapidly modernizing and maintaining its independence in the face of Western imperialism, and it was a good model. So even before. The Japanese took over Korea in 1905 to 1910. The Koreans had already been uh, learning from Japan. You you said uh, both North and South Korea were influenced by Japan, well, right? Well, North and South Korea are modern creations. There was before 1945, there was no North and South Korea. It was one country, and the North. Right. This is North Korea. Uh, and South Korea were created when the Soviet Union and the United States, uh, if you want to actually pinpoint it on August 10th and August 11th, 1945, decided to uh, divide the peninsula into two occupation zones. And over the next three years, what happened is the Soviets set up a Soviet-style government in the north in their occupation zone, And the Americans set up a, uh, let's say, a pro-American, anti-communist uh, state in the South, a little bit like what happened in Germany uh, at the same time in the late 1940s, right? uh, except that, uh, well, we'll go into, I don't want to push that analogy too far, but you can think of it as uh, it was divided the Uh, not because of any decisions of Koreans, but by the occupiers, much as Germany was divided into East and West by its occupiers. Yeah, I would like to go uh, further into that, but maybe first, um, I would wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you about the geography of uh, Korea as well. Uh, so, what what is remarkable there? What do we yeah What do we need to know? Well, if we look at the uh, geopolitics. Korea is a little bit unusual because it is the only example anywhere in the world of a small country, and it's really not that small. I, I want to point out that Korea is the same area as Great Britain and has a somewhat larger population. So 
Koreans think of themselves as a small country. They're often considered to be a small country. That's simply because they're surrounded by much bigger countries. So, right? so it's a relative term. But if, if Korea, were, North and South, were placed in Europe, they would be one of the biggest countries in Europe. But, we're, but located where they are, they seem like a pretty small country because they're next to the two largest countries in the world in area, the largest in population, and by Japan. Uh, now, Japan, we think maybe think of a small country, but historically it's had three times the population of Europe, and it's a very pop was a very populous country. The population of Japan was was twice that of any European country until well, you know until the mid nineteenth century and it's a big country it's would stretch if you put it in europe it would stretch from northern finland to southern portugal you know it's a big archipelago or for north americans it would stretch from montreal to new orleans and and it had a population nearly as large as the entire middle east in the 19th century so uh so and three times larger than japan so on one side there's china then there's Russia, and before Russia, whoever occupied the steppes, the Manchus, the Khitans, the Mongols, you know. So there was always one great empire and the, to the north uh, west of it, and then there was China to the southwest and Japan on the other side. So what you see in Korea is a country that has been completely surrounded by much bigger and sometimes aggressive neighbors and has still managed to survive. So that, that's kind of a unique situation. I can't think of a country that have lasted for so many centuries as an independent and distinctive entity, and yet always during that time period was surrounded by much bigger neighbors. And it only has one direct border, right? Solely to now China. No, it has actually a 14-mile or 22-kilometer border with the Russia. Oh, it does? Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. I thought just yeah. China. Right. It uh, the it does uh, as a tiny border on Tumen River uh, separates it from Russia. Yeah. But but uh, the Russian influence wasn't that great as uh, as Chinese or Japanese. You didn't mention Russia. Well, in the... first of all, the Chinese were the traditional influencer. You know, China was not just a country. It was a region and center of one of the world's great civilizations. And, uh, you know, compare China with Europe, which is actually larger than Europe in size and population, and historically always has been. And uh, China was the... Uh, had a literate urban society that dates back, you know, to the second millennium BCE. And so therefore it was, it, it was where the Koreans learned, they, the tribal peoples that became the Koreans got their ideas of government, got literacy, got Buddhism and later Confucianism, got many of their ideas about art, literature, style, dress, everything, right? Even their agriculture originally all came from China. So uh, Korea has always been profoundly influenced by China. In modern times, and that's only in the late 19th and 20th century, it was, it was influenced greatly by Japan. The Japanese in the late 19th century became deeply involved in Korea from about 1870s until 1910 when they annexed Korea. 
And then it was ruled by Japan as a colony for 35 years. So the Japanese influence was profound. Russian influence, not as strong, but the Russians were there. Uh, they were involved. In fact, uh, the Russians and Japanese actually fought a war over control of Korea. It's called the Russo-Japanese War from 1904 to 1905. And uh, Japan won. If, uh, if the Russians had won, perhaps the history of Korea would have been very different. It would probably end up being a Russian satellite. Uh, so there was some influence. And then later, the Soviet Union's influence on, on Koreans was, was quite considerable because many Koreans looked to the Soviet Union as a, uh, as a model for modernity. Uh, and of course, the Soviet Union uh, occupied and, and set up a Soviet-style government in the North. So North Korea has been profoundly influenced. Uh, United States is the other great important influencer. Its influence goes back to the late 19th century when American missionaries, the U.S. government had little interest in Korea at all, but American missionaries had big interest, right? And they, there was a large American missionary effort. So they were another conduit for ideas about how to construct a modern society. And Korea does have a large Korean, uh, Christian community. It has the largest number of Christians, uh, uh, percentage of Christians of any country in Asia after the Philippines. About a third of Koreans are Christian. And most of those Christians are Protestant Christians, and they're mostly, as a reason, with the Presbyterian Church being the largest denomination, and it comes from the American missionaries' efforts in the late 19th and 20th century. And then, of course, after 1945, the U.S. occupied the South, and the U.S. became the South Korea's military protector and its main trading partner. And you said the um, the Koreans, before the split, before the occupation, um, liked the way R Russia thought or the, the Russian uh, influence? Did I get that right? So they were kind of welcoming uh, Russia in a way? Oh, yeah. Let's go back to what happened, okay? In the late 19th century, the European imperialists, right, or Western imperialists, because we have to throw in the United States there, were, were, were dominated the globe. And they were interested in opening up trade and relations with all countries on their terms. And when countries decided they didn't want to enter, the Europe Westerners had no reluctance to use force. We know the Opium War, when the British wanted to trade with opium and the trade sell opium to the Chinese, and they said, no, opium is illegal. The British sent their uh, gunboats in. The Opium War defeated the Chinese and forced the Chinese to open themselves up to trade. Americans did the same thing to Japan. Americans sent gunboats, sent ships, and basically at gunpoint forced Japan in 1854 to sign a treaty opening up its ports to American trade, to trade with the United States. Um, they, and then Korea was the, the last, and it was, uh, there was half-hearted attempts by the French and by the uh, uh, Americans uh, to force Korea open. They both sent little expeditions to teach the Koreans a lesson. Uh, but they were poorly, they would, let's say they were, 
They were poorly organized and didn't accomplish anything. But in 1876, the Japanese used copying did what the Americans had done to them, <laughs> took British uh, gunboats that they had bought from Britain, sailed them into Korea and threatened Korea to open at gunpoint. And the Koreans realizing had, had, they had just repelled invasions by France and the United States and now Japan. And the Korean government realized they couldn't afford anymore. <laughs> they had no choice but open their country. Once they opened to Japan, then the U.S. and Britain and Russia and France and all the other interested countries became involved in Korea. But after that time, right, the American interest was limited, really, other than the missionaries, right? The British and French interest was not, not significant. But there were three countries that were very interested in Korea. And in the late 19th century, each of those countries fought to uh, to be the dominant influence in Korea. One was China, because uh, China was trying to survive. It was being threatened. It had suffered several invasions by Russians, British, and French, and uh, and it was trying to survive as an empire. And what one of the strategies was, uh, and by the way, they did succeed because China's still there, <laughs> and. Uh, they, uh, the Chinese Empire is five. You know, we, now it's called the People's Republic of China, but it's the same empire. And uh, but one of their strategies was to uh, protect their periphery. And in the late nineteenth century, they were very involved in in western part of China and the. Uyghur region, they were involved in Mongolia, they were involved in the southern borders, and they got involved in Korea because Korea is on the periphery and it's a good uh, staging board for further penetration in the country. So they wanted to control the, the periphery. So the Chinese became very deeply involved in Korea and sought to basically bring Korea, not to conquer Korea, but to bring it uh, under their control. Right. The third power, so you have a declining China trying to hang, survive by, by strengthening its control over Korea. You have an expanding Russia. Now, Russia was becoming an Asian power. The Russians didn't have, the Russians were expanding uh, in Asia. They had, uh, in 1860s, 70s, 80s, they conquered Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and all the Central Asian countries. They were moving into Mongolia. They, uh, uh, in 1860, they acquired a section of, of Siberia that had previously been ruled by China. That's how they be, established a border with Korea. And after 1860, they established this new Pacific port, Vladivostok, and they wanted to become a Pacific power, but they needed warm water ports, right, where the ships could use. And, and on the new southern border was Korea. So the Russians became very interested after 1860 in acquiring control over Korea. The third imperialist power was Japan, because Japan was modernizing, but it was also aping the West not just in the form of you know governments and science and technology and industry, but also like all good Western powers, it was becoming an imperialist, and it was acquiring it. It annexed Okinawa, it uh, 
conquered uh, Sakhalin, these islands in the north. Uh, and it was um, and high on its priority was control of Korea. As the Japanese described it, a dagger pointing at the heart of Japan and also a staging board for further entry into the continent of Asia. So, uh, so those three countries contested control over Korea, which is very bad for the Koreans because the Koreans were desperately trying to you know, modernize their country. They had, they had two or three centuries of evolution and, science, and ideas about science and technology and government and society that they were all learning all at once. Being having been previously pretty isolated, and they were busy trying to figure out what they had to do to survive. In the meanwhile, China and Russia and Japan were all backing different factions and 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 attempting to control the country, and they clashed. Uh, China and Japan went to war over Korea, eighteen ninety four to eighteen ninety five. Japan won, and China was out after eighteen ninety five. Now it was just between Russia. And, uh, and Japan. And the two countries uh, uh, had manipula- tried to manipulate government in Korea, different factions. There were pro-Russian factions, pro-Japanese factions. And eventually this led to the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. And after a year of fighting, the Japanese surprised the world, actually, by defeating Russia. And in 1905, Russia was forced to recognize uh, Japanese uh, uh, control of Korea. And now there was nobody left. And the only two powers there were Britain and and the United States. And both of them signed secret agreements, basically saying, yeah, you can take over Korea if you want to. There was a secret... There was a secret agreement signed in 1905 with the United States, and it says Japan can do whatever it wants to in Korea as long as the Japanese recognize American authority in the Philippines. Ah, okay. It's called the Agreement. And it wasn't a formal treaty. It was an agreement. So there was nothing actually technically, you know, uh, and not widely publicized. But in 1905, the Americans simply closed their embassy and left. So the, so the only power that could have stood in the way of taking over Korea was gone. And so now with the blessings of Britain and Jap- United States, Japan took over Korea. So before you that... You say, why did the Brit- Brits... Britain yeah. Well, interested. And that was because the British were... Uh, had signed in 1902 an alliance with Japan to counter Russia. So the, the British decided they would back better Japan than Russia. <laughs> and before that, what were the um, uh, what was the British Empire and the U.S. interested in Korea? What resources? Or I understand uh, Chinese ambitions for uh, trying to conquer their um, peripheral and uh, Russia's and Japanese intentions, but. Europeans and uh, U.S. intentions. What what resources were they trying well, to gather? Uh, the, the Russians, by the way, the Chinese interests were purely strategic. Russian interests were both strategic and economic, and the Russians were involved economically in Korea, for instance, in the timber industry. Uh, a little interesting aside: a Russian family who got very rich in Korea. Its name was the Brenner family, and the Brenner mansion in 
in Siberia is a tourist attraction today. They had this extravagant mansion. And some uh, older people would know that the uh, grandson of this big Korean timber baron that was got rich in Korea became a famous actor named Yul Brenner. Uh, and some people will who know movies right, uh, will, will know who he was. But so the Russians had an economic stake. But I think they were it's just as much a strategic state. And the Japanese, it was strategic and economic as well. They were interested. One thing the Japanese were very interested in Korea was rice. Japanese hmm. were having a trouble, you know, rice is the mainstay. And the Japanese were having trouble feeding the rapidly growing population and industrializing population, urbanizing, industrializing. And they saw Korea as a, a source of rice to feed the population. So um, now J Japan has annexed um, Korea, and what happened after that? Well, the Japanese, uh, it, here's where the situation comes a little strange. Uh, when the Japanese occupy uh, Korea, the Japanese had no clear policy among themselves. You, you, there's, not, there's no monolith Japan. There's just different interest groups in Japan. The military, they just see Korea as a military problem and a place where you know, I, they, could, uh, they could protect a periphery, perhaps launch adventures into China or Manchuria or something. Uh, uh, there obviously were business interests that simply wanted to invest in Korea. North, the northern part of Korea was North Korea has considerable mineral wealth, things that they needed for their industrial country, and just a markets to sell their goods and, and that. Uh, but there were also uh, uh, other Japanese that just saw, uh, saw it as a part of a larger exp uh, expansion of the Japanese state and actually pursued a policy of assimilating the Koreans and making them Japanese. Just That may sound strange, but the Japanese did this with Okinawa. Okinawa today is now thought to be very Japanese. I mean, no one thinks of karate as a non-Japanese art form, but it's Okinawan, right? But of course, it wasn't originally Japanese at all. O Okinawa was an independent state. They had their own language, Okinawan, still spoken by a million people, and um, were never part of Japan until 1874 when the Japanese annexed Okinawans and then carried out an assimilation process. They would all, you know, they would all have Japanese names and speak Japanese. That worked for little Okinawa. It took about a, it took, it took almost a century for the Okinawans to become a fully assimilated, but they did. Uh, but, but Korea was different. Korea was a much bigger place, more different. Uh, the cultural gap was greater. And uh, the Koreans had no interest at all in being assimilated because uh, in the early 20th century, the concept of nationalism was, was modern concept of nationalism was very, very strong in Korea. It was spreading. So the Koreans were determined to assert their Koreanness, which ran counter to the Japanese insisting that they were really just Japanese. And they had a whole mythology how in ancient times, Korea and Japan were the same country and somehow they got split and Korea became the backward 
Japanese that you know that developed the stagnant, degenerate economy. And now they're going to help them again, right? They were they were right, but the Japanese were never consistent about that. So, and it was only in the 1930s the Japanese began to aggressively pursue a assimilationist policy and forced Koreans to change their names to Japanese names. Uh, Oh, yeah. They, all Koreans had to worship at a Shinto shrine, register and worship. And Shintoism has nothing to do with Korea at all. It's not part of their culture. It's a totally alien religion to them. And uh, Japanese publications were closed down. Japanese uh, became the sole language of education. Students could be punished for speaking their own language in schools. They're supposed to speak in Japanese only. So this was a very heavy-handed uh, effort to force assimilate the population of Korea and uh, probably work just the opposite to make the Jap- Koreans more resentful and more anti-Japanese and more nationalistic. Um, so that was the unusual part of the Korean colonial experience, this attempt may, to may I ask, uh, lose their identity. How were they able to change uh, the language to Japanese? I mean, well, they were, were, were they Koreans were, already fluent in Japanese, or well, yeah, just to you have to you have to learn Japanese and speak Japanese. But that would take a long time, right? For yes, for the of old course. Company. It was, in fact, most Koreans never learned Japanese. Okay, okay, so very, really only a small percentage were fluent in it. It, it, it. it Yeah, of course. It would that policy okay. would take generations. So you're talking about maybe a century or two at the most, if you could ever even do that in that short of time. You can't just erase especially Korea is not a tiny place. I mean, it is a culture, even in those days it had thirty million people, right? With a uh literate tradition going back fifteen hundred years. Uh, you know, it, it would be like the Germans trying to conquer uh Poland or France and just making everyone speak German. <laughs> it's not yeah. going to work. <laughs> yeah, that sounds maybe, right. maybe over many generations, possibly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was a, it, it, it was a strange policy. And, uh, but at the same time, um, uh, Korea was seen as a, uh, as a stepping stone into China And Japanese nationalists, the ultra-nationalists, the extreme imperialists, their goal was not really Korea, was was to control China. Ambitious. Yeah. And uh, Korea was the base. Mm -hmm. Once they would advance into China, which they did. They invaded Manchuria in 1931 and then uh, invaded... uh, Central uh, China in 1937. Mm-hmm. And it failed. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> then, then it failed and uh, it fell. And um, how did we get to the split and the, um, not occupation, but the in- influence by uh, Russia and the US then? Well, <clears throat> during World War II, Korea is part of the Japanese Empire. And uh, on the part, I could say, especially the Americans, but this is probably somewhat true of the Russians as well, they knew very little about Korea, right? 
And Korea was not high on their agenda. It was an afterthought. At the closing days uh, of the war, and and just to kind of review what was happening in World War II, the Soviet Union was an ally of the United States and Britain in the war against Germany. But it was neutral in the war in the Pacific where the United States and Britain were fighting Japan. So, right. And that was a deliberate policy because the Soviet Union did not, was fighting for its survival and was not interested in, in, in dealing with the Japanese. And the Japanese were, were pretty occupied with their conquest of China and did not want to start, have to fight uh, the uh, Soviets, which were on the Chinese border. So the two countries just agreed to be not to fight each other during the war. But in the closing days of the war, uh, the U.S. and Britain signed an agreement with the Soviet Union that within 90 days after Germany surrendered, the Soviet Union had to enter the war against Japan. And the the Soviet Union kept its word to the day. 90 days later, right, on (laughs) August 8th, they declared war and they immediately launched an offensive against the Japanese Empire. That also coincided with the American atomic bombs on Japan in 2006 and 8. So think this is what's going on here. The Americans had never given much thought about Korea. But on August 8th, the Soviet Union declares war on Japan. And people knew the war was going to come to an end. They've already dropped the first atomic bomb. The Japanese you know, Navy was largely destroyed. And it was just a matter of time. Uh, and the next day, uh, reports came in that the Soviet army was advancing quite rapidly because the Japanese army along, you know, uh, along the border in Manchuria, along the border on, so- on Sakhalin Island, all these uh, areas, and along the Korean border was hollowed out and really not very capable of resisting the Soviets, right, who come, who are transferring veteran troops from the, right, from the, from the Western Front, and now they're, they're, they're moving into Japan. And then, you know, and this is one reason, by the way, one reason the Japanese surrendered wasn't just the atomic bomb. They were terrified of the Soviet occupation of their country. Hmm. They're much rather surrendered to the U.S. to the Soviet Union. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, so they were terrified of the Russians, really. So um, uh, it dawned on people in Washington that if, you know, the Soviet Union is going to be occupying all of the Korean peninsula, and the U.S. had already was planning for the occupation of Japan. And the, and the Americans also, of course, were understood that the Soviet Union and the United States would probably be have a conflict of interest right? uh, when the war was over, their, their alliance would no longer be valid. And they were worried about a security threat to Japan, which would be under American control, from the Korean Peninsula. Right? The same thing, Korea's a strategic position. So, and there was nothing they could do about it because the Soviet Union could easily occupy the entire Korean Peninsula before any Americans get there. There, there were no Americans anywhere near. 
Americans were still out fighting Pacific islands. They couldn't have gotten to Korea. So on, uh, so on the 9th of the, uh, the night of August 10th and 11th, a committee of the, of the State Department, the Navy, and the War Department form, was formed to decide, come up with a solution to Korea. And they were given a few hours. <laughs> so, right? And all they had was a, was a National Geographic you know, commercial map of Asia. Wow. None of them had any background or knowledge of Korea whatsoever. And they looked on the map and they said, well, they noticed the 38th parallel divided Korea almost too evenly into two halves. So they came up with the idea, why don't we propose to the Soviet Union that we just have a joint occupation. They'll stay north of the 38th. We will stay south of the 38th. And they had already made similar agreements with Austria and Germany, and they thought maybe they could make something like that in the Soviet Union. There was no real reason for the Soviet Union to accept this because they could easily occupy the whole peninsula. But immediately the Soviets accepted. Immediately. Why? What? Well, no one really knows, but one, one reason... Um, is that the Soviet Union may have been interested in cooperating with the occupation of Japan. So they knew the Americans would occupy Japan, get there before they did, most likely. So by doing this, they were hoping probably to some sort of joint occupation of Japan. But if that was their hope, they didn't get it because the U.S. refused to let Soviet Union have any role in Japan. So in a sense, it was a bargain. It was a miscalculation on the part of the Soviet Union. Uh, They made a mistake. (laughs) And and nothing was offered. The Americans didn't offer any deal, but the Soviets thought they could figure, they would get a quid pro quo for this. You know, okay, now let's work out something in Japan. And then the Americans said, no, no deal in Japan. So... uh, that was the agreement. So when the Soviets o- occupied the North, and then the Americans got there a little later, it took Americans another so three weeks or so before they could get to their zone. And uh, in each zone, the Japanese surrendered to the commanders, and they set up a, a military occupation. And it's clear that no one had any, any plan from there. This is not well thought out. To give you an idea how poorly thought out is the Soviets' occupation arrived without even having Korean interpreters. (laughs) What? (laughs) They didn't have Korean interpreters. So they couldn't talk to the people. And and the Soviet commanders actually complained. They said they had to complain to Moscow, give us some interpreters. (laughs) (laughs) when, when, When... when the Americans arrived, they did not have Korean interpreters. In fact, they were so ill-prepared that the American military commander, the man who actually governed South Korea for three years, his name was General Hodge, and he, he said, give me an interpreter. A G, American soldier saw one, American officer saw a soldier standing in the marketplace speaking to a Korean woman in fluent Korean. And he said to him, can you, you speak Korean? And he said, yeah, I was a, a family were missionaries. I was born in Korea. And he said, I got a job for you. And he became the American military commander's interpreter. And, and uh. yeah, and I, and I point that out is just 
how haphazard, disorganized, unplanned occupation. And we know, we know because the Russian archives were opened in the uh, 1990s, and a couple of very fine Russian scholars have done really good research in those archives. And it's clear that the military commanders didn't know what to do, and they kept asking Moscow, give us some orders. What are we supposed to do now that we're in occupation? And how can... There was the confusion on both sides. So they were neither side was so it was a, a series of improvised moves that followed that uh, eventually led to the creation of two different states. It wasn't anything planned, but it's how things evolved over the next three years, and it's sort of logical because as the Soviets began to put. Uh, communist, Korean communists in charge, and the Americans began to put anti-communist uh, in charge of the South, it really, you know, there was no uh, feasible or practical way that you could actually uh, unify this country because you had people who hated each other. And I should point out here, people should know this, that the Korean independence movement, Koreans had an independence movement, they had guerrilla fighters, they had terrorists and everything, you know, fighting for independence during the Japanese occupation period. And the Korean anti-imperialist movement, anti-Japanese movement itself was split. There were some who had become communist and some were not communist at all. So uh, you had, and so what happened is the, Communist imperialists were centered mainly in the South. And they just went to the North, to the Soviet zone, because the Americans were putting communists in jail. Mm. <laughs> right? And the, uh, the nationalists who were uh, anti-communist in the North fled to the South because you know, the Soviets were putting those guys in jail or sending them to Siberia. So uh, so while the difference in North and South Korea, there's no historical difference between them. They're the same people. There's no difference. In, in, right? it's, it was a totally arbitrary division. Politically, people sorted each other out, right? The anti-communists went to the South. The the communist sympathizers, communist sympathizers went to the north. Was there any sort of resistance against uh, against the occupation or uh, Russian and was, U.S.? Uh, there was some in the north. It was, of course, ruthlessly and effectively suppressed. And most people who opposed the Soviet occupation just fled to the south. Uh, and and and. The Americans were also pretty ruthless in suppressing opposition as well. Uh, remember, these were run by military men. They just saw this as a military thing. Uh, and when <laughs> when people made trouble or or they they applied military solution. <laughs> uh, and. And I have to say, on both sides, the people who were running the occupation really did not have a clear idea what they were doing. They didn't have enough knowledge about the local culture and they weren't always given clear enough instructions from their, their respective governments. So uh, people were improvising. 
Because it's interesting. Everything um, that we now talked about, I feel like Korea, there were always some uh, foreign um, interest groups who, who had a future for Korea in mind. Um, but we didn't really talk about uh, what, what actually the Korean population's view on these things were. Well, the Korean population had very... Little Very to say. Clear agenda. There, everyone agreed. Uh, hmm. After after the Japanese takeover, what Koreans wanted was the restoration of their traditional state. After all, Korea was united in the seventh century, and it was a unified state for thirteen hundred years, with just one brief period. Where right, um, and that makes Korea older than any European country. There's no European state as old as Korea. And uh, so you have a people speaking one language, ethnically homogeneous, who have a tradition of more than a millennia of governing themselves in their own state, own distinctive culture, their own writing system. Uh, if you know, it's Korean, it's very different than Chinese or Japanese. They have their own alphabet, they have their own culture, their traditions, and, and not used to uh, having any foreigners in their country, let alone being ruled by them. So the Koreans knew, all knew what they wanted. They wanted to uh, regain their independence and their, their, their traditional state, not necessarily their traditional government. They didn't want to go back to a feudal monarchy, but what they did want was their own Korean government uh, as pretty much uh, with the same boundaries and provinces and everything and many of the traditions it had before. But they were divided on how to get there, how to achieve this goal. And some Koreans looked towards uh, communism and the Soviet Union as a model. Communism seemed to be a good way of uh, a poor country uh, developing into a modern progressive state. And communism was anti-imperialist, mm. right? right. The, some Koreans look to United States and Western Europe as models. This is, you know, this is, this is how to achieve a modern state. Uh, and so um, you had a division even among the nationalist groups. They didn't cooperate very much at all. Uh, they had different orientations. They had different visions of what an independent Korea would look like. And those were really sharp differences, making it very difficult to reconcile. So the, so the Koreans uh, had, uh, they were weak. Their independence movement was weakened by the fact that they were ideologically divided. Now, that doesn't mean that, they can be simplified into pro-Soviet and pro-Americans. It wasn't quite that simple, but it became that way when the occupiers, because if you had a more leftist version, vision of uh, modern Korea, you were comfortable with North Korea. And if, and, and if you had a more, uh, you could say, Western European, North American idea of, of, of what a modern state should look like you are more comfortable in the south and since then conflict uh, is still between the two countries right well, it has never ended 
the conflict began from the very beginning. The, the two countries became states in 1948, but each government, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea in the North and the Republic of Korea in the South, claimed to be the government of all of Korea. As a matter of fact, uh, when, when the government was formed in North Korea, in North Korean Constitution of 1948 says Seoul is the capital of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And really? it's, it's in the Constitution, right? Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, was considered the base camp, you know, the temporary base camp until the liberation of the South. And it's actually in the Constitution themselves, Article 105. It's still in there? Um, yeah, also? yeah. This, and, and, okay, so the government of, and not only that, but in the parliament of North Korea, two-thirds of the seats were, were South Koreans, representing the district of the South. And in the South Korean parliament, 1948, right, South Korean parliament had vacant seats to be held representatives of the North. They would be filled once elections could be held after they liberated the North. So you have to realize that, that the division of Korea was almost totally, una- was totally unacceptable to almost all Koreans. They didn't have any part of this division. This is not what they wanted. So both North and South Korea had a clear uh, agenda, which was to unify the country and restore the traditional Korean state. Right. And the what North Korea attacked South Korea, not the other way around, although there were many, including President, the first president of South Korea, Sigmund Rhee, whose slogan was March North and wanted to as soon as possible invade the North and unify the country. But uh, he couldn't because the U.S. wouldn't give him the weapons that he needed. They gave them. They gave a limited the military a limited amount of ammunition. No tanks, no planes, and the few artillery they gave were under the control of American officers because they didn't trust mm-hmm. Reed. They didn't want him to start a war in the north. But I should point out both armies withdrew from Korea after 1948, so there were no foreign troops in the Korea after mm-hmm. 1948. The on the other hand, with North Korea, it was different. At, after some reluctance, the Soviet Union, Stalin, and then Mao agreed to back Kim Il-sung, the North Korean leader's plan to invade the South. And they gave him the tanks, the planes, the artillery, the training that they needed. he needed to do this. So North Korea invaded South Korea two years after independence uh, because they could. If the Soviet, if the South Koreans could, they would have invaded the North. Good enough of a reason, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, do you see any, or is there any any glimpse of a future of a united Korea? Well, this is a question that people have been asking for decades, uh, and of course, this is what Koreans want. The uh, the division of Korea has been consistently thought of as a temporary thing. The countries will have to sooner or later reunite. They're the same people. Why, why do you know? 
remember, Koreans had nothing to do with the division. Mm. Right? It was imposed by outsiders. No one in Korea even knew about the plan to divide the country. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so it was. Uh, it's, it has been consistently unacceptable. The, there's been a change in recent years. The recent, it's not been a change in the North. The North's goal is still to reunify the country. All North Koreans people are taught that, you know, eventually they will liberate the South. And, and this is, uh, you know, this is almost the purpose of the state. This, right? this is this great goal to complete the uh, national agenda of restoring a unified, independent Korean state. That's the whole reason for the existence of the state. So it's not like, well, this is something they would like to do. It's the whole purpose of North Korea's existence is to serve as the instrument by which they can finish the problem of uh, of the task of unifying the country and restoring traditional Korean state. The South Korea things have changed somewhat. The South Koreans now uh, have become more realistic about the situation. And here's the problem. South Korea is a country of 50 million people. It's a wealthy, high-tech, democratic society. North Korea is 25 million very poor people. This is a very poor country. It's got a per capita income on the level of most African countries, right? Not comparable at all to South Korea. And it's, um, it's a country where the people lack the kind of modern skills. Remember, there's no internet. <laughs> people don't know how to drive a car. <laughs> they don't, you know, they're, they're pretty isolated. They lack many of the skills. That, uh, that you need in a, in a modern society, and they grew up differently. And the South Korea has to face the task, how, if we unify, how do we absorb 25 million impoverished countrymen? The task would be so overwhelming. And think of the example of East and West Germany. The unification of the Germany in 1990 d- came with considerable costs. It was, it was an expensive uh, unification. It seems to have gone well, but there were problems, right? Uh, and, and it, it, you know, it cost a lot of money. But the case was a lot different. East Germany had only one quarter of the population of West Germany. And the disparity in incomes was not nearly as great. West Germany was three times wealthier than East Germany. It's a big difference. But South Korea is 20 times wealthier than, than North Korea. And North Korea has half, not a quarter of the population. Besides, the states have been divided longer. The people in the North have been isolated longer. The cultural gap, the gap in, in skills and uh, is greater. The task would be many times greater than that. Uh, that West Germany had when it was absorbing East Germany. And any economist, the cost is going to be in the trillions of dollars. And although South Korea is a wealthy country, it's not that wealthy. 
and it would be a long and hard uh, it would be a long hard process. And so, what the South Koreans today uh, emotionally, yeah, let's unite tomorrow. But when speaking with their head, they'll say, "Yeah, we like unification, but not now." And what they would like to see is North Korea reform itself, develop its economy, right, enter the global marketplace, and and gradually narrow that gap between the two Koreas before they could be reunited. Because you know, what people assume is that once it was before united suddenly, the 25 million people in North Korea would all want to come to that south. <laughs> Right. Be 10 million in Seoul, right? Yeah. yeah. In, a, in a couple of weeks. So yeah. it would it would be impossible. So but but if you could reform. So the policy of South Korea is reform, encourage reform in the north, and then someday in the future, and that future is becoming increasingly distant. It'll take a long time, it could take decades, right? A generation or two, uh, then the country could reunify. So then, the in um, in the conflict, the South Koreans are mainly defensive as well, and the North Koreans more the off- on the offense. Uh, I'm sorry, say that again. I did. I missed that. In the conflict, in in um, uh, military conflict, the North Koreans are mainly offensive, and the South Koreans are mainly defensive, since they don't at the moment. Um, have an interest. I would say that's that that one way of describing it. But <clears throat> the North Korean government, uh, certainly in the when when North Korea's invasion of the South failed, and they failed to un, unify the country, it uh, it ended not in the end of war, but it ended in an armistice, a ceasefire. The two countries are still at a state of war. And the North Korean government looked at it in, as a, they lost the battle, not necessarily the war. And so their plan was, we have to develop our country more, industrialize, strengthen our, our country, and wait for, for the instability uh, in the South. Because in those days, it seems funny, but in 1950, South was poorer than the North. It was less industrialized. When the Japanese ruled Korea, most of the modern development was in the North. The North had the industries, it had the energy, it had the resources. The South was poor. It was agricultural, but it didn't have much economic modernization. And um, so North Korea... Uh, pursued a policy of rapid industrialization. And for a while, their economy grew after the first decade after the Korean War, North Korea's economy grew much faster than the South and was industrializing and modernizing. And they would be in a... So what they would do is they would strengthen the country, make it stronger, build up their military, uh, encourage, uh, uh, show themselves as demonstrate to the South Koreans people that they were the real successful Koreans, that their system was the uh, more successful system that that would better able to restore Korea as a modern, successful, progressive, autonomous state. And and there was a certain amount of pro-North Korean sentiment in, in South Korea. 
Now, I'm not saying majority of people, but there was enough there that uh, enough discontent with the government that North Korea's hope that the South Korean people would support it in its efforts for unification were not fanciful. There were there was a possibility. The other thing was, of course, they knew they couldn't invade the South until the American troops withdrew. And so the other strategy was wait till the Americans will eventually leave. Like they, right? And things like the American defeat in Vietnam and withdrawal from Vietnam was very encouraging to them. This, we wait, 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 and eventually the, the, everything will work beyond work in our favor. But that, of course, point never came. Uh, and so that was the, that was the uh, uh, whole plan of, of North Korea. But it changed too. By the 1980s, the economy of North Korea stopped growing, while that economic growth in South Korea only accelerated. And if there's a turning point, I think you could look at the 1988 Olympics. That was a kind of coming out party because South Korea was a little known country. It was in the shadow of the United States, who considered a kind of client puppet state of the U.S. by many people. It... Uh, and it was thought to be a very poor country. Uh, South Korea's rapid economic development in the 60s, 70s, and 80s really did not attract a tremendous amount of international attention. So the Olympics was a coming out policy. Look, we're, we're a modern country. And it worked very successfully because uh, almost immediately the uh, Soviet Union decided to open up relations with South Korea encourage South Korea trade and investment. The Chinese opened up trade offices and they wanted to trade with South Korea. And most of the third world countries that it had supported North Korea began looking to the South. Uh, and uh, uh, by that time, uh, I think realistically, North Korean leaders must have assumed that they've sort of lost the race uh, for who will become the real successful half of Korea. And in the 1990s, things got worse. The economy began to contract in the North. There was famine, uh, enormous problems, whereas South Korea's economy just continued to grow. And so by that time, all the North, and then of course you had the fall of the other communist countries, which is kind of scary to mm. North Koreans. So North Korean strategies switched from getting ready to liberate the South to survive. The regime survival became the main goal. But that doesn't mean they ever abandoned the hope, even if they thought it would be in the distance of reunifying the country under their regime. And that's where uh, North Korea is today. what would you say um, to to get you the end? Uh, are the best resources to inform oneself about Korea to learn about Korea? Well, of course, I would say come read my books <laughs> naturally, uh, but certainly there are many many resources to learn about Korea. Uh, for one thing, you can actually watch Korean television and 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 and, and uh, movies. Uh, which are already popular in much of the world, and uh, just to get an idea of you know contemporary Korean society. The Koreans also make some 
fairly good historical dramas too, historical movies you can watch. And if you watch anything about the occupation, you'll see that in South Korea today, the Japanese are always villainous characters. <laughs> one thing, the, by the way, one very interesting thing, North Korean movies, which aren't very good, uh, and uh, South Korean movies depict the Japanese pretty much the same way. Huh. <laughs> right. Interesting. Right. Yeah, and in North Korean movies and, and 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 stories, the main enemy is usually the Japanese. Mm. Makes sense, uh, I guess. <laughs> as it is in South Korea, uh, so the the sure. but that would be one way. But of course, there's there there are a lot of good books on 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 Korea available. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, 20 years ago, it would be hard to find a lot of good materials on Korea, but Korea has now become discovered, you could say, and there's interest has grown really enormously in recent years. And so there's lots of literature, there's websites on Korea. I don't think you would have too much uh, trouble uh, finding a lot of good and interesting and formative uh, material. Uh, I have a history of Korea that has an extensive bibliography, and that would, would and I select those things which I think are accessible to people, not you know, not, not written in academic ease that, are, but accessible to the interested reader. So I would say get uh, uh, get borrow a copy of my concise history of Korea, and then you'll see then annotated bibliography where I've gone through all materials on Korean history. Now, if not, it doesn't cover all aspects of Korean culture, but it covers its history. And now covering your work as a historian, um, if you were to, let's say, look at a new country in a totally different region, let's say Zimbabwe, for example, some country, a country where we assume that you know nothing about it, um, how would you... How would you start uh, researching for that country? What would your process look like? Well, I shouldn't admit doing this, right? But I will admit one of the first things I would do when I come to a subject that I'm totally unfamiliar with is go to Wikipedia. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a great site. As I'm a teacher, I'm a professor, and we always tell students, you know, don't use Wikipedia as a reference because it is not peer-reviewed and does not have the same standard of reliability as serious academic works. But the fact is, it is pretty good. <laughs> I use it all the time. And, and the better articles have a nice bibliographies at the end of them. And you're right. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's it's uneven. So I mean, a simple uh, the. I would look at reference works, basically, uh, and and just read, you know, read articles in in the press about things. That's that's. But that's you want to know when I come to something familiar. That's what what I do, and then I try to find a good book, and you know, just go look at the reviews, um, and 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 find something that uh, looks pretty good. Now we'll come to the, or let me first ask you, was there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or anything you else you want to say or mention? Well, uh, I'm not quite sure what your final questions are going to be. So, so, but I would say that um, 
usually people, when they want to know about Korea, they want to know why North and South Korea are so different or how different they are. And I want to say, of course, they're the same people and emphasize that there is no historical basis for North and South. The line is just totally arbitrary, right? <laughs> right? It's just someone took a ruler, which is exactly what happened, and drew a line straight through a country, right? right? So, so they are the same people, right? And with the same cultural tradition. And the other thing is, what can we... So they are very different. But what's interesting about it is you take uh, this homogeneous people that share the same culture, same history and tradition. And yet in three generations, they developed in such radically different societies. It's really rather extraordinary. And it makes you wonder, we, we put so much emphasis in the uh, traditional culture, you know, because, you know, people are this way, Muslims are this way, or Arabs are this way, or French are this way, or Russians are this, Chinese are this way. But the Koreans have the exact same cultural heritage. And one society is isolated, poor, and authoritarian. The other one is open and democratic and prosperous. And even the political system. If, if you only, if there was no North or South Korea, and there was only North Korea, you would, people would say, well, of course the Koreans have this authoritarian, totalitarian government because they have no tradition of human rights or popular participation and they have this conservative Confucian culture in the background and, you know, absolute monarchy. So, you know, democracy doesn't work in that culture. But you have the South Korea. They have that same culture. And it's one of the yeah. most open and democratic societies anyway. So how, how do you... So, <laughs> or it could be the other way around. If there was only a South Korea, you might say, well, the Koreans, you know, people would have theories why Koreans' culture naturally lends itself to an open democratic society. Uh, right? So cultural explanations for things uh, have their limits. And I think North and South Korea uh, prove, prove that. That is really interesting. That was a good last point. And then I would like to go into the a quick round of rapid fire questions, meaning I will ask you a question and I um, would ask you to answer it in two to three sentences. So okay. um, rather short, around about two or three. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. If you had a big poster, let's say in the middle of Times Square, in the middle of your city, everybody would see it. What would you write on it? It had to be about Korea. <laughs> no, so not necessarily. What? Not necessarily. Oh, well, if we make it about Korea, I would say uh, um, help the Korean people, the North Korean people. Help them. Yeah. Whatever way we can help the people. I mean, I'm not talking about help the government. Help the people. Okay. Whatever we can do. Feed them, help them, do something. If it weren't about Korea, what would you put on it? Oh. <laughs> if it needn't uh, to be. Save the planet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a good one. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's okay, next one. Uh, do you have a favorite quote? Any kind of quote. Any well, kind of quote. Sorry, and I'll give you one. It's from... Uh, the uh, Italian philosopher Alfredo Pareto, and it's all history is current history. 
and that may not wow anybody, but I think it's really important. That is that when we try to understand the, the past or the world, we are always, always limited by our current preoccupations. Mm. And I Hindsight just, just think as, as an historian, I always try to remember that, you know. So all history is current history. Well, that's good. I like that. Thank you. A controversial opinion. I believe what almost nobody else does. A controversial opinion that almost nobody else does. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I have to think about that. Um, opinion might be the greatest, the greatest threat to our future is probably not the threats that we uh, think they are. Because as what I, what I mean by that as a historian in the past, as a historian, people often just don't see the big threats ahead of them. So there's something out there mm. not, not, besides the environmental and, and, and threats for uh, technology, which is really scary, and the threats coming from a fra politically fragmented world with, uh, with, with the international institutions are not functioning as well as they were in the past to keep the peace. Besides those threats, there's something else that we're missing that's a greater threat. I just don't know what it is. Sort of black swan event. Um, what would you have liked to know um, when you started learning about Korea, let's say? What I would have liked to know at that time or what I would like to wish... I had known already before I started. Uh, let's rephrase the question. Um, what would you have liked to known when you were 20 and started your career? Well, I would li like to have known. Uh, I would have liked to have known how the trajectories of the two Koreas would have continued because I started getting interested in Korea over 40 years ago. And at that time, I didn't really have a full grasp of, of what was happening in South Korea or North Korea. And I didn't, the, the, I missed many things that were happening. And I, I wish I had paid more attention to. And I'll give you one, the popular culture. I didn't take it seriously. I didn't realize that Korea was going to be, you know, so what filmmakers and movie makers and entertainers were doing would be, you know, be so important someday. I just didn't see that. I didn't take those things seriously. And I didn't um, fully appreciate uh, uh, how the Koreans would work, manage to work out how to transition to an open democratic society after so many decades of authoritarian rule. I didn't really, really understand that. I didn't, I, I was hoping the country would move in a democratic uh, uh, direction, but I wasn't really, didn't really understand that, that at the time. And I wish I had known more, a little bit more about Korean society to have foreseen 
that successful transition. Uh, what I'm trying to say is I wish it would have been more prescient. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. I was interested. I was learning about the culture, but I, I, I missed some of the important things that were happening. Mm. Maybe that answers the next question. Um, what's your newest biggest insight? Into Korea? I would say in general. If, if there's a bigger one outside of Korea for you that you see as your newest well, biggest teach, insight? I teach, well, first of all, I teach world history. So when I think about insights, it would be world history. And um, I think one insight that, that I can't think of one that stands out among all the others, but I'll give you one that I do have. And that is that... Um, What we think is a logical progression, that one thing leads to another. For instance, we see the, the story of evolution of progress, the evolution of change in history. Uh, is really, really based on contingent events. That is, the history is really, really unpredictable because there's always those contingencies that you just can't see, you can't predict. I think we just had one recently with the, the pandemic. I mean, that wasn't a totally unforeseen event, but still in our everyday life and, and even governments and their planning and something, we're just caught by surprise by it. So, so I think the role of contingency is, you know, unplanned, unexpected, unanticipated events how important that is to shaping our story. How would you spend $10 billion to make North Korea a better place? Try to feed people. I would, I would if, I, if it was possible, I would set a, a school meals program so that every kid got you know, meals, nutritional meals uh, at home. And, and, and that's how I would feed Feed the people, especially the children. That, okay, that's easy. <laughs> How would you spend $10 billion to make South Korea a better place? Provide more greenery and living spaces and parks. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, to learn more about Korea, obviously, um, take a look at Michael's uh, books. Uh, Korea at War is the latest one. Is there anything else you would uh, still like to add, a uh, message maybe, or uh, something else to promote? Uh, I can talk about my next book. I'm writing a biography of Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea. And that'll probably be the one year, probably a year and a half before it's published. But uh, People can look for that if they. they <laughs> <laughs> we'll still have to wait a little bit, but it might we'll be. We'll wait a bit, but it'll, it'll get done. Uh, well, thank you very much, and um, it was a pleasure. Okay, well, thank you very much for inviting me. Bye.